Hello everybody, this is our seventh sermon in our series looking at the book of Philippians. Our series title is How to Follow Christ in a Challenging World. And this week we're thinking about trusting in Jesus alone. The passage we are looking at is Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 to 11. This week I've sat in two meetings where organisations have discussed reopening after lockdown. They have debated the safety precautions that need to be in place. They've asked members to feedback on what rules would make them feel safe. In both these meetings, the need for caution was expressed. Many people stated how vulnerable they still feel, even though the vast majority of them have had both vaccinations. In both meetings, I think wise and careful decisions were eventually made. But what I came away with was a sense of just how much confidence has been lost during this pandemic. People are genuinely afraid. Perhaps for the first time in their lives, they sense their mortality. In one way or another, this pandemic has been so devastating, it has rocked us all. Many of those things that we put our confidence in have been stripped away. Some of us used to trust in our health, but now we have seen even the fittest become ill. Some of us used to trust in our wealth, but many of us have lost income or seen our savings dwindle. Some of us used to trust in our position in society, but even prime ministers and presidents have been struck down. Some of us used to trust in our age, but sadly even children have become victims in this crisis. Some of us used to trust in modern technology, but the track and trace app has hardly been an overwhelming success. Some of us used to trust in the safety of our island, but now tourists are returning. No, this pandemic has disorientated and destabilised us in ways we have never known in our lives before. The confidence of many has been shaken to the core and it will take a long time to recover. Now, obviously, the pandemic has been deeply upsetting and we need to show compassion to those who are feeling anxious at this time. But perhaps this challenge to our thinking might have some benefit to it. Perhaps it will prompt some of us to search for deeper sources of assurance. Guarantees in life that have the power to hold us even through times of acute suffering. Perhaps it will prompt some towards the promises of faith. Perhaps it will lead some to turn and put their trust in Jesus. As Christians, this is certainly what we should be encouraging as we speak to our family, friends and neighbours. For the last six weeks, we as a church have been reading Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we have discovered that it was written at a time of great difficulty. The young church in Philippi lived in a very challenging world. There was religious persecution about. There was great immorality in the city. There were false teachers springing up in the church. And there was great disappointment to be faced. Particularly as the Philippians heard that their great friend and hero, Paul, had been thrown into prison from where he was writing this letter. These then were difficult days. 
It must have been very tempting for the Philippians to give up on faith altogether and just merge back in with the crowds of the city. It certainly would have saved them a lot of hassle and kept them in touch with many family and friends. The Apostle Paul was well aware of the difficulties the Philippians were facing. And we've seen him write passionately in the attempt to pick them up and urge them on. He's tried to advise them on how they could keep living for Jesus in the world they were in. Much of his advice has revolved around living in unity with other Christians, seeking to serve and support one another within the church, and keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus and the hope that he brings. In our passage today, though, Paul turns to take on one of the specific challenges that the Philippians were facing directly. Paul knew he must deal with the false teaching that was starting to infiltrate the church and that was causing such a dramatic loss of confidence amongst his friends. This particular problem arose because during the middle of the first century, a group called the Judaizers emerged. These were Christians, but they were also Jewish nationalists. They believed that in order for someone to become a follower of Jesus, they also had to become a Jew. They believed that the old ceremonial laws found in the Old Testament were still binding on the new converts that were being made by Paul and others right around the Mediterranean in their day. By the time Paul wrote this letter, these Judaizers had obviously arrived in Philippi, where they were urging the new believers to observe Jewish festivals, follow their complicated food laws, and most importantly were insisting that all men had to be circumcised. Of course, none of these rituals and traditions had been practiced by the Philippians before. And when Paul had led them to faith in Jesus, he had not mentioned them. Consequently, as the Judaizers arrived in the Philippian church, they were causing havoc. The young Christians there were left completely confused. They just did not know who to believe. On one hand, these Judaizers were quoting scripture in their argument. They sounded quite plausible. Yet on the other hand, Paul had introduced them to Jesus and they'd seen the work of the Holy Spirit among them as a result. Just what were the Philippians to do? Who were they to follow? Sadly, as men and women started to take sides, the church was in real danger of splitting. The very worst thing that could happen in the climate of persecution. Remember, Paul has just spent the last chapter and a half urging the church to see unity as the key thing to see them through their time of crisis. Now, I've told you all this because we need to try and understand the seriousness of the situation in Philippi. Only then will we appreciate why Paul was so angry when he wrote this part of the letter. And he really was angry, furious even. Just listen to how he addresses the Jewish nationalists in verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. I think it's fair to say that Paul was not holding back here. Through the next few verses, he's going to vociferously warn the Philippians to watch out for the Judaizers and do everything they can to rebuff their teaching. At the time, Paul knew the reality of what the Judaizers were preaching. Their message was Jesus plus. That Jesus on his own was not enough. 
that faith in the cross and the empty tomb was not enough, that salvation required Jesus plus the Jewish law. And Paul would fight to his dying day against that particular heresy. Whenever you start adding rules to the gospel, you start to make people fear. You start to make them lose confidence, to worry about whether they're really saved or not. And once you've made people afraid about their death, you can bind them with all sorts of rules and regulations. Paul would not have any of this. He believed the Philippians had enough to worry about with all the persecution and immorality of the city without having to battle these lies as well. So in these 11 verses, he gave his beloved church the advice they needed. Paul gave the Philippians the theology, the personal testimony and the target for living that they would require to see them through this challenge. Let's start off with the most important, the good theology that the Philippians would need to rebuff the Judaizers' heresy. We've said that the Judaizers were insisting that all the men got circumcised as Jews if they wanted to be saved. But Paul had a very different message. God no longer looked for physical circumcision to set his own people apart. Instead, since the work of Christ on the cross, God looked directly at people's hearts. In verse 3, Paul gave three characteristics of a true believer. Let's read that verse again. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Both then and now, there are three things you can look for to know if someone is truly saved believer or not. First of all, a truly saved Christian will seek to serve God and do so in the power of the Spirit. It no longer matters if the work of circumcision is done on outer body parts, but it totally matters whether or not the Spirit is working on the inside. You will see evidence of change in a true follower of Jesus. As they seek to serve God, you will see the fruit of the Spirit growing in their life and character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control will be coming evident As they seek to serve God, you might also see some specific gifts of the Spirit in action as well. Be they the more dramatic ones of prophecy or healing or the less dramatic but equally important gifts of leadership and administration. A true Christian will be seeking to serve God and the Holy Spirit alive in their hearts will be helping them. Second, a truly saved Christian will be seeking to glorify Christ in everything they do. They will live and breathe for Jesus. They will try to speak of him, act like him, pray to him. And when things go well, they'll stop and give him all the glory. A true believer will not just be living for themselves, but for the Lord. Third, Paul says, a true follower of Jesus will not be putting confidence in their own actions or personal strength, but trusting wholly in the Lord for the present and the future. In Paul's mind, true believers have a humility about them. They know that they cannot possibly save themselves, so they stake their life on the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb. To Paul, this is what counts. This is all that matters. 
The Philippians can be totally reassured. They can walk forward with confidence. They don't need special holy days or religious diets and rituals. They don't need to become Jews or get themselves circumcised. They just need to turn in faith to Jesus. Repent of their sin. Seek to follow him. And they will know if they've done that because these three signs will be seen in their living. A desire to serve God in the spirit a desire to glorify Jesus and a humility about their own ability and importance. A humility the Judaizers were certainly not showing much evidence of. Still today, in moments of weakness or doubt, we can be assured of the reality of our faith, the truth of our salvation. If we find these three signs in our lives and the lives of those we love. We can face the pressures of our present with confidence, knowing that come what may, we are God's people. We are safe in his hands. Eternity is guaranteed. So that is the theology the Philippians required to rebuff the Judaizers' claims. Paul now moves on to sharing a little of his own personal testimony to further back up his argument. We find this in verses 4 to 9. It turns out that actually Paul is the perfect person to speak into this issue because at one stage in his life, Paul lived and thought just like the Judaizers did. Paul also used to put his trust in keeping rules, observing ancient traditions and generally earning his salvation before God through his own ability. As a one-time Jewish zealot, Paul had ignored the work of Jesus and looked for his salvation elsewhere. He had put his trust in his race. In verse 5, he speaks proudly of his lineage as a person of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You could not get more Jewish than Paul was. He'd put his trust in his religion. In verse 6, he speaks of how he was a Pharisee, a zealous keeper of rules. In fact, so much so he'd persecuted anyone who broke them. Third, Paul had put his trust in his own righteous acts. He followed all the rules. He sought to do good. In fact, he tried to live faultlessly. Before his conversion, Paul had literally done everything the Judaizers were trying to force on the Philippian church. If anyone was going to be qualified for favour from God through their own heritage and efforts, Paul was that man. But in a very dramatic way, Paul had discovered that none of this was to be the case. In the same way that all of our false sources of confidence have been stripped away during this pandemic, Paul had a day in his life where he suddenly realised just how incomplete and vulnerable he was, just how misplaced his previous zeal had been. That day occurred when he was travelling to Damascus in order to persecute Christians, and he suddenly met the risen Lord Jesus. I think most of us listening to this will know the story of Paul's conversion. If you don't, you can go home and read all about it in Acts chapter 9. Suffice it to say, when Paul met Jesus, everything in his life changed. Listen to how he speaks about the significance of that moment in verses 7 to 9 of our reading. When Paul met Jesus, he discovered that he needed Jesus in his life and Jesus alone. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In many ways, Paul meeting the risen Jesus had been a costly discovery. From that moment, he had lost his reputation, career, past friendships, and quite probably some of his family relationships. His conversion had also started him out on the journey, which had now led him to languishing in prison, possibly on the verge of losing his life. Paul really could speak on what it was to give things up in life to gain something that was better by far. He gave up those things in his life that gave him a false sense of security and sought instead a relationship with Jesus. Jesus was now the source of his confidence. Everything else was garbage to him. In verse 9 there, he really spelt it out. Since meeting Jesus, he no longer trusted in his own acts to be made right before God or to achieve his salvation. Paul knew his righteousness was given him by God through faith. That was both all the assurance he needed and the greatest thing he could possibly ask for. He wanted the Philippians in the first century and us today to have the experience of receiving that gift. So Paul has now given the theology to rebuff the Judaizers and the personal testimony to back up his argument. There is one final thing he wants to say in this section of the letter. As a continued rebuttal to the false teachers in town, Paul wanted the Philippians to live with one target in mind, one goal that they were aiming for. Listen to the final verse again, verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The Philippians were not to spend their time worrying about the future or how to fulfil a list of rules that would guarantee their salvation. They were simply to live with the desire to know Christ more, to act like him and to live for him. Even if that meant they would come across persecution in response to their faith, Paul knew from experience that God would give them the power to get through it and would ultimately raise them to new life in the end. This is true for all Christians. It's true for every single one of us today. It doesn't matter who we are or what we have done. Remember, Paul had actually put Christians to death, and I cannot imagine any of us have done such a thing. The mercy of God means that if we wholeheartedly seek to love and follow Jesus, our future is utterly secure. We can have complete confidence in life. As we read this passage then, our target is to stop trusting in ourselves or our own resources and to put all our faith in Jesus, to strive to live for him day by day. When in service of our heavenly King, our anxieties will begin to fade and our troubles will come into perspective. Death has been defeated, life is assured, and we need not be overly burdened by anything in this world. When you know that you've been justified by faith, you are set free by Jesus and the Holy Spirit to truly live. Let me just finish then by asking a question to really apply this passage to us today. As we go through this nervy time of coming out of lockdown, 
What are we putting our trust in? What is it that gives us confidence for the future? This pandemic has shown us that nothing other than Jesus stands in the face of death. And knowing that, and our need to be made right before God, let us remember that salvation does not come by being born in a Christian country or brought up in a Christian home. It doesn't come by observing religious rituals or just attending church. Salvation does not even come by being a good person. It comes solely by trusting in Jesus, our risen Saviour and Lord, staking everything on him and living for him with all that we've got. When we've done that, we can face anything that might come our way with absolute confidence. How do we follow Jesus in a challenging world? We do it by trusting in him alone.